Good morning. It's good to be here with you. See many familiar faces and some new faces. If uh, I could, if you, I will be visiting the camps as a, next uh, a week from today. And so if you would like to send them a card, it's a dollar to mail something to Vancouver. But if you'd like to send them a card or send something very small, since I have a lot of stuff I'm already taking at their request, um, you could bring it tonight, and I would be glad to take it with me. If you would turn to the second chapter of Revelation, the second chapter of Revelation, I'd like to look at the first letter to the church of the seven churches in Asia that are written here in Revelations. We're going to back up Revelation. Remember, it's singular. I have a bad habit of saying, adding an S. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's back up two verses and start with verse 19, if you would, of chapter 1. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter, the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word. In verse 19, we have part of the key to understanding this second chapter. And he says, write the things which thou hast seen. And that's the things that he lists out in the first part of chapter 1, the things that he'd seen. And then he tell, he's told to write the things which are. And that starts in second chapter and goes into the third chapter. And that covers the churches. And then he's told to write the things which are, will be hereafter. And that starts with the fourth chapter. And so the fourth chapter starts the future. The second and third chapter is what is current. And then he tells us this, the mystery of the seven stars. A mystery is something that was hidden in the past and now is revealed. And so he's going to explain what the seven stars are. And the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the word here in Greek means messenger. So it's any type of messenger. And from the context, we need to find out whether it's 
heaven in nature or whether it's human. Most likely, in my opinion, this is human. And so it's probably the messengers that took these letters back to the churches. Now, and the seven candlesticks, which I saw, are so the seven churches. And we often think of the candelabra, since we often study the tabernacle and, we, and the temple, and we think of a candelabra. But it's really not so much a candelabra as seven separate candlesticks that are formed in a circle with the Lord Jesus is walking in the midst of them. And now we said unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. And so he's writing to the church of Ephesus. And Ephesus is a fairly familiar church to us because we read about that in the New Testament. In fact, one of the New Testament books is specifically written to the church of Ephesus. And it's one of the larger churches. And so it's something that we're very fairly familiar with. And then notice the characteristic of Christ. In each of the seven churches, he brings out a characteristic of Christ that was also presented in the first chapter. This one's, a, this one's these things saith he, and the he is Jesus Christ. And notice what the characteristic of Christ that he brings forth. He holdeth the seven stars in his right hand. As we read in the, in the 20th verse, it says... It says that they saw him in my right hand. There's a difference, I believe, between seeing them in his hand and him holding them. And I, and I imagine him having them in his hand and then between, and now he's, he's, the idea is grip. I believe the communication here is the character of Christ that we're demonstrating is that he's in control. That the church is under his control and that he has it gripped in his right hand, that he's holding it. And that he's walking in the midst, that he is concerned what's happening in his church today. That he is walking in the church to see what's going on. And in fact, as we're going to find out, he's actually judging the activities of the church. These are the things that are. So each of these seven churches, I believe, speak to what we currently have as a church today. The church is the body of Christ. But he's not talking so much as, as the universal body of Christ. He's talking about the local body of Christ specifically. Because each one's unique and each one's different. And each one has its own issues and its own problems. And so he's going to address the issues and problems, particularly of Ephesus. If you study the whole one, and tonight we, I think we're going to look at Smyrna, which is the second one. If you study each one, has its particular problems and its particular issues. And so we want to look at this one of Ephesus. So in verse 2, it says, I know thy works. And the word for know here is in, in the Greek is the one that indicates that it's, it's complete and full knowledge. It's not progressive knowledge. Often there's two Greek words for knowledge. One's progressive, you continually learn. One's that you have full knowledge. He has full knowledge. He has full knowledge. One of the things that sometimes we struggle with is the fact that Christ knows everything. I love that passage in Isaiah 11 where it says that he will not judge by the seeing of the eye and the hearing of the ear. I'm rather limited in my judgment. I have to judge by the seeing of my eye and the hearing of my ear. But as we know from the scriptures that the Lord looks on the heart. And the Lord judges the heart. And he judges the heart with full knowledge. Unfortunately, I judge outwardly and I judge with rather partial knowledge. So notice what he says. And, and he knows thy works. 
And the idea of work here is labor under exhaustion. They are busy. They are working hard. And then notice what he knows, and thy labor, and thy patience. Something often missing in our world today is patience, and they had it. It wasn't a few doing the work. It wasn't a few being patient. It was something that characterized them, and I think that's important. Then notice what it says next. And thou canst not bear them which are evil. There was a sensitivity to sin and to holiness. We live in a day and age where most churches are opening their doors and are seeker-friendly, and they really aren't very careful about evil coming into their midst. That was not true here. They had a standard of righteousness and holiness, and they could not bear them that, that were evil. And then notice next, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles. They contended for the church. Not only did they practice discipline, they were strong on doctrine. They were strong on doctrine. They had tried them. They discerned. Jude 1.3 says this, And I exhort you should earnest, that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered from the saints. These were people who contended for the saints. Thou hast tried them and put them to the test. You know, one of the issues we have today is that we, we want to be very careful not to offend, so sometimes we are not too discerning. 1 John 4.1 says this, Beloved, Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they be or are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. This was a church that tried the spirits. John, 2 John 9.11 says this, what, Whosoever transgresses and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. They were strong in doctrine. If someone was to get up and say something which was not doctrinally true, they would correct it. Paul wrote to Titus and said this was, a deal, was something that the elders needed to be able to do, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince a gainsayer. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially them of circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, whose divert whole houses, teaching things that they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. They were strong in the knowledge of the word of God. There were men who studied the book. They had discernment in regard to false teachers. It doesn't stop there. And as born... To bear what is burdensome. They were patience. Often patience goes along with, with long-suffering. You find those tied often. They were long-suffering. They were able to bear up under difficult circumstances. And for my namesake has labored. They were jealous for the name of Christ. They were jealous for the name of Christ. And they, they did not grow weary in well-doing but they remain faithful. Now I read these, 
And there's a Pharisee spirit in me that I look at all these characteristics and I said, boy, that would be a nice assembly to go to. That would be a nice church. Let me check my checklist, strong in doctrine, holy, strong against sin, knowledgeable of the word of God, tries the spirits, discern the spirits. Boy, that fits all my checklist. And looking on the outward, they meet all my priorities. But the problem is I'm judging outwardly. I'm judging outwardly. Because notice what verse 4 says. Nevertheless, I have something against thee. Because I was left my first love. They maintained the doctrine, but they had not maintained the love. What looks outwardly fair and promising is lacking inwardly. Is lacking inwardly. Love demands love, not deference, not diligence, not anything else, and nothing else but love can atone for its absence. If there's no love, there's nothing. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13, if you would. I believe the scriptures are consistent. I believe they clearly teach us. In many passages, the same thing. I think sometimes it takes me a while to see the message. Paul's writing here in 1 Corinthians 13, he says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and, and have not love, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. I believe the scriptures are really clear. Without love, we're nothing. We can be right on every outward issue, but if there's no love, there's nothing. John 14 and 15 says, if you love me, keep my commandments. I think sometimes we get that reversed. I think sometimes we think we're going to prove that we love him by keeping his commandments. And we somehow think that if we keep his commandments, he's going to love us. His love's unconditional. He loves us. But he, he wants us to respond to his love and do things out of love. And not do things out of duty. And duty without love is ritual. If the heart's not engaged, it's nothing. Turn over to Jeremiah 2. It's not only a problem with the church at Ephesus, it was a problem with the nation of Israel. It was a problem with the nation of Israel. 
addresses it in Jeremiah and also Ezekiel. That, in fact, this was their problem. Jeremiah 2 and verse 2. Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. And he's talking to them about their lack of love, and he says, I remember when you used to love me, and you followed me out into the wilderness. I remember that love. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, verse 3, and the first fruits of his increase, all that devour him shall offend, evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? Why don't you love me anymore? What did I do that you no longer love me? Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt and that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of shadows and of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt? If we go down to verse 13. For my people have commanded, committed two evils, they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no waters. Two evils. One is they forsaken the Lord and the second they replaced him with something else which will never satisfy. Satisfaction is in the Lord only. Duty, ritual, and everything else will never replace him. When the Lord came on this earth, he was rejected because he didn't fit their expectations. And when he taught them that their expectations and their ritual and what they thought was obedience was nothing, they rejected him. And he called them whited sepulchers because he could see their hearts. Now let's go back to Revelation and look at verse 5. At this point, you might be asking me why I think this, because some people might even teach that verses 2 and 3 were a commendation. I don't think they're commendation. I don't think the passage in the context would say they're commendations, because notice what he says. He says, at the end of the verse, and I will, remove thy I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of the place, except thou repent. This is serious business. This is his judgment. That all these good things that you have in verse 2 and 3 are nothing. And they don't meet what we need, what I need from you. And I will come and remove the candlestick. I will come and remove this candlestick. Turn over to Malachi, if you would. Malachi 1. My wife was sitting next to a person in an assembly I was speaking in, and that person said under their breath, but loud enough for those around her to hear, if he has us turn to one more passage, I'm going to not do it. (laughs) 
Malachi 1 is very close and similar in some respects to, to the church at Ephesus. And so he opens Malachi 1, and, and the question is, they're, at, they're questioning the love of the Lord, and the Lord says, I've loved you. But then the, quest, the Lord questions their love, and he says, how have you honored me? You've not honored me like a father. You bring me sacrifices that are terrible. You bring me sacrifices that, that are abominable. But notice when he comes down to verse 10, what he has to say. Who is there even among you that would shut the doors? Neither do you kindle fire on my altar for naught. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. The church of Ephesus was not the first place. He said, I have no pleasure in you. I'm going to come and remove the candlestick. He said it to the nation of Israel. He says, ritual does not do it. I have no pleasure in ritual. You might as well close the doors if your heart's not in it. If you're not doing it out of love, you might as well close the doors. Because there's only one thing that he desires, and he desires our love. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 12 and 14. Paul understands love like very few men, I believe, in the scriptures. He's struggling with the, the church at Corinth, and he's written them a very strong letter, making many appeals to them, and he's wrapping this appeal up, and he says this in the 14th verse. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you. And then notice what he says. I seek yours. I seek not yours, but you. I seek not yours but you. The Lord doesn't seek your service. He doesn't seek your ties even. What he seeks is you. He's not in it for what he can gain from it. He's in it for you. And sometimes we think get this mindset that God's in it for, for what we can bring. Or, as Paul would say, we believe that God seeks ours. Our money, our time. You know, sometimes when you're doing marriage counseling, that's what it sort of comes down to, is the wife and the husband are struggling, and the husband thinks all she wants is his money, and the wife wants his time, and, it, and it's a real struggle. No, they want, they want each other's hearts. And God's the same way. He doesn't want empty ritual. He doesn't want what you can bring. He wants you. Just like Paul. Now notice the next, next phrase in the same verse. He says, he's going to use an illustration. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. 
unfortunately, we live in a day and age that this is not always true. Sometimes a parent seeks from their child. They seek love. And they end up spoiling their child thinking that that's going to get them what their heart desires. And they're really not doing what's best for the child. It's very difficult to discipline a child. But you discipline a child because it's what's best for the child, not what's best for you. Because the best thing for you is to, to, to spoil the child and have them love you at all costs. Later on, that's not good for the child because they struggle in life if you do that to them. But if you're really interested in what's best for the child and you remove yourself and what you want out of the equation, you're going to do what's best for the child. Well, God does the same thing for us. We go through trials. We go through temptations. We go through difficulties because God's interested in what's best for us, not what's best for him. Because he knows that if we do what's best for us, we will love him and honor him and worship him. Love is the opposite. Love is the opposite of selfishness. God loves, God is love, and God loves us totally unselfishly. He's proven it so many times in so many ways. And he wants us to love him back in the same way. Do you love God because of what he can give you? Or do you love God for who he is? For who he is. Let's, let's go back to Revelation and look at this. Verse 5, he tells them three things. Three things. I remember them with three R's. You might remember them any way you want. The first one is remember. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. And I would say return to the first works. Remember, repent, and return. Obedience without love is something that needs to be repented of. It is hard if you're obedient to see past the blindness that your spiritual pride causes to see a need for repentance. The, the Pharisees could not see it. He called them to repentance and they said, who, me? We're serving God. We're the ones doing everything right. Who, me? Because spiritual pride will blind every time. But notice he calls them to repentance. To repentance. And what's to be repented of? Because I read verse 2 and 3, and I think those are all pretty good things. Because they're without love. Obedience without love must be Repented of. Obedience without love must be repented of. So first thing is to remember. What do we remember? What do we remember? 
that Christ loves us and gave himself for us. My struggle sometimes is with the fact that we come at 9 o'clock, 9.30 here to remember the Lord on Sunday morning. You would think of anybody, and I believe that was a practice of this church at Ephesus, you would think if people came on Sunday morning to remember the Lord, and we had a very encouraging remembrance service, that through weakness he was crucified, that he humbled himself and took upon himself of no reputation and became obedient even unto death for us. One of my favorite verses, that though he was rich, yet he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. I can't even begin to enter into the depth of his poverty. I can't even enter into the depth of his riches. It was mentioned this morning that God saw the travel of his soul and was satisfied. I have no idea. I'm in awe of the travel of his soul for my sins. Of anybody who should love him back and should be stirred every Sunday morning to love him, it should be us because we should be remembering every Sunday morning what these emblems that he left us is to remind us of, that he loved us and died for us, that God loved us and he spared not his own son. We should be reminded again and again of the cost that was paid for our salvation. And if that doesn't stir us to love, then I... I I don't know what should, and maybe we've grown callous because we've heard it too many times. I would hope not. I would hope each time and every time we come to remember the Lord, we're stirred by the awe of it all. To think that God who knew my sins placed every one of them on Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful that I don't have to remember my own sins and account for them because I know I'd forget one. But I know that God remembered every one of my sins and Christ paid the full debt and the full payment for my sins. We sang some songs about our blessings. Though he was, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. Not only did he redeem me and, 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 and save me so I won't spend eternity in hell, been he punished for my sins. He took my sins on himself and was punished for them. But then that wasn't enough. He adopted me as his son. He's blessed me with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. He's told me I'm as near and dear as his own son to him. He's welcomed me into the holiest, the place the high priest of Israel could only go once a year and not without blood. And I'm walking in and even mentioned words like coming in with boldness. He's done everything in the scriptures stay beyond what we can even think or ask for me. And I don't love him. And I'm not in awe of it all. And I'm just going through ritual you read Malachi 1, they even go so far as to say, yeah, it's even wearisome or it's become a burden to us. It's hard to get up on Sunday morning and go to church. You know, when you don't like your job, it's hard to get up and go to your job. 
sometimes justifiably so. You've got a terrible boss. But how many times is it hard to get up and go meet with the Lord? How, many, how hard is it to get up? Does that become wearisome to you? Is that a burden? And so then the, the point that he's making is that's something to be repented of. So remember and then repent. Sometimes when you're counseling young couples, you have them write down what, why they fell in love with each other and why they loved what originally brought them together and what qualities and things. And you write all those down and you start looking at those. And if their love's growing a little cold, you remind them and you try to drive that spark back. Look, you remember this. That has not changed. The Lord's telling us the same thing. Remember, realize how nothing's better than to see a young person come to Christ or even an older person and see that flame of love for the Savior. And it makes me jealous because I don't have that enthusiasm. They run around, they want to tell everybody about the Lord. And I have to admit that there's times that I wonder and I look at them and I fall short and I have to repent. Now that's, I don't have that love. I don't burn with that fervency. And I need to repent and I need to remember and I need to repent. And then notice what it says and, and do the first works. And do the first works. And there's a difference here, because you're doing the first works, you're doing them out of love. It might look similar, it might even look the same to someone observing from the outside. The difference is what's in the heart. The difference is what's in the heart. I can't see the heart. I don't know if you're here out of duty. I don't know if you're here out of ritual. I don't know if you're here because you love the Lord and you want to be with his people. But the Lord does. And he's walking and observing. And he sees. And he knows where your heart's at. And I've got to judge my heart and I've got to look at my heart on a regular basis. And when I come and it seems cold or it seems wearisome or the meeting seems boring, I have to judge my heart. Did I really come to meet with the Lord or did I just come out of duty? Did I just come out of duty? Verse 6. Now he's going to commend him for something. But, thou, but this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. When we get down... A little bit later to the church at Pergamos, they actually hold the doctrine of Nicolaitans. Here he hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And what the Nicolaitans is, Schofield and others would teach that when you take the Greek, two Greek words and you put them together, that it means clergy laity. And it very well could be. It also could very well be moral decline and sin. And saying, Whatever goes, goes. Uh, who am I to judge others? Not unlike the problem in Corinth where they, where they were puffed up because of their ability not to judge. 
We don't know what it is, but this is what the commendation is for, is that they, they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And I think that's important for us to understand. Verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear. He that hath an ear, let him hear. This exhortation occurs seven times. In the address to the first three churches, it immediately precedes the promise to the overcomer, whereas in the last four, exhortation forms the closing words of the address in each case. The first three, he that hath an ear, and then there's a promise. The last three, it closes. When the Lord was here, he often said, when he, said, when he taught his parables, he said, he, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the word of God says. Uh, let's turn over to Luke. Let's see, I think it's... Uh, Let's turn over to Luke 6 and look at verse 46. The Lord's closing the Sermon on the Mount with this. And he's told them that unless their righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, that they will never see the kingdom of God. And he closes with this. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And then he's going to give us this illustration. We sing songs about it. We often use it as a gospel illustration. But notice what he has to say. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show to you whom he is like. Here we say, he that hath an ear, let him hear. The idea is, is to hear what he's saying and to do it. James says that some go look in the mirror and they walk away and forget what they saw. But here the illustration, notice the illustration. If you, if you hear and do, he is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently upon the house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. The idea here is if you hear and do, you're like a house built upon a rock. Now notice what he says next. But he that heareth and doeth not. He that heareth and doeth not. is like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the streams did bear beat vehemently. And immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. We've hijacked this in some ways and applied it to salvation, but it's really not a particularly a salvation verse. It's about hearing and doing. And when you hear and do the word of God, you're like a, a house built on a foundation. Notice, particularly Luke points this out, he, he, you dig deep. It's not always easy to follow. 
Later on in a couple chapters, they'll say that he who wants to follow me needs to take up his cross. It, mean, it requires work to be a follower. But if you do, your house is built upon a rock. And when the storms of life come, you will withstand them. But notice that if you don't, if you're just a hearer and you don't do, he likens your house. He likens your house to a house built on sand. And it will fail. It will fail. We see a lot of failure today in the church. And it's most likely caused by people who hear and don't do. Most likely caused by people who hear and don't do. Now, note, let's go back to Revelation 2. And we're in verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Know that, notice that it's plural. These things written for Ephesus were written for our instruction also. It's just not, let those in Ephesus hear what I have to say. It says, read it again. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. It's plural. It applies to us. These things are written for our benefit, for us to learn from, for us to apply to our own lives. And then notice what he says next. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. The point that he's making here is that he that hears and does is an overcomer. And they will be rewarded. John 1 John 5 tells us about overcomers. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is a victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? John wrote that. John wrote this. John's consistent with who, who an overcomer is. The overcomer are those who conquer, are those who hear the voice of the Spirit and respond. Those who hear the voice of the Spirit and respond. And then the promise is to eat of the tree of life. The tree of life we're going to read later in Revelations is in the middle. And it's there for everyone to eat of. It's talking about eternal life. It's talking about having your sins forgiven. It's talking about spending eternity with God. That's the promise that he makes here to those who overcome. Because where is it? It's which in the midst of the paradise of God. Those who overcome will have everlasting life. Not through works, but through faith. Through faith. Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. Romans 4 is a great lesson in the fact that it's faith and not works. Because unless your works are in a response to love, they're empty. This whole concept and this idea that it's works that God wants is just false. 
My wife's from Mexico, and I will tell you the truth that when I'm down there and people are on pilgrimages, and they practice the land, and they give up a lot of things, and they do a lot of things, and they think that's pleasing to God. That's not what God wants. God wants their heart. They don't have, God does not have their heart 75 to 80 to 90% of the time, and I'm, not, I'm pretty sure he doesn't have their heart even when they're doing penance. They're just doing it to gain God's favor. God's not interested in that. God's interested in your heart. And if he has your heart, you will be an overcomer. You will be an overcomer. Some of the things we need to remember. Love can go, go, grow cold if things distract us. If other things draw our attention, if we fill our lives with other things, our love can go cold. Proverbs 4.23 says this, keep thy heart with dull diligence for out of it are the issues of life. The nation of Israel committed adultery and their love for God cold, grew cold because of that. So the warning is, is to keep your heart for God. He wants your heart. Give it to him. Follow hard after him. Don't let other things distract you. So God's promise, though, is to forgive. I love that. God's a restoring God. God's one if you will come and overcome your spiritual pride, and if you'll repent, remember, and return, he'll, regive, he'll forgive and restore you and your love for him. Let's pray. Father, we come... Oh, Father, we would admit that there are times that our love is cold. That my heart is far from you. Father, we thank you that you're a forgiving God, that when we return, repent, remember that you forgive. Oh, Father, help us have a fresh awareness of your love for us so that our hearts might respond to that love, not out of duty, not out of guilt, but, Father, out of love. We thank you, Father, that you're not interested in ours, but you're interested in us, and that you've proven your interest in us in so many ways, including sparing not your own son, paying the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for our sins, giving up heaven's best, Father, for our sake, and for your Son to come and for love us and give himself for the church. There are so many reasons, logically, that we should love you. And yet, Father, we know that there needs to be a response from our hearts. And so, Father, we would love you 
and your son and demonstrate that in the way that we live so that others might see Christ in us and others might see us as those who know Jesus Christ on an intimate level and that we love him and that we love him. Father, we thank you again for this morning that we could speak of your son. To remember him, Father, in his death till he comes. We're so thankful it's till he comes and we look forward to when we will forever be with him in paradise. We thank you in the name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.